Welcome to Bank the Fire. I'm your host, Bob, and I started this podcast as an excuse to sit down with interesting people and share my conversations with you. I meet with entrepreneurs, CEOs, and friends to discuss what drives and motivates them, their definition of success, and what they do to keep themselves going. Today, we sit down with Megan Davidson. She is one of the most experienced labor doulas in this country. We discuss the importance of holding space for others as a labor doula, being on call literally all the time, and she shares a couple of awesome, crazy New York stories about women giving birth. Please enjoy. Megan, please tell everyone of how like amazing you are. <laughs> And the, was it, you've delivered more babies, you've helped deliver more babies than any other doula in this city, I believe? I'm not sure if, I'm not sure. I definitely am one of the most experienced doulas in the country. There are folks who probably delivered. In the country, okay. Yeah, there are folks who, I mean, I'm at about 760. Mm-hmm. But there are folks who've, who've been doing it for longer than me who, I don't know about the volume of births yeah. that they go to, but they might be at, at higher numbers. But certainly... There are not very many doulas in the country who have stayed with this work for so long. It's like it's a business that has a high turnover and a high burnout. So can you tell us as to why we were before we started recording, we were talking about uh, your sleep (laughs) or the lack of quality of your or no, not the lack of quality of your sleep, but that this work requires, I think, of people a flexibility in sleeping often Mm -hmm. if you're going to do it for a long time, because a lot of births involve missing a whole night of sleep or getting up in the middle of the night or sleeping during the day or whatever. And so the the work has a high burnover rate, uh, burnout rate, I think, because of sleep partly. Mm-hmm. It's also, you know, you're on call all the time, which means you're always pivoting from whatever your plan was to taking care of somebody, mm-hmm. um, which is easier for some folks and harder for some folks, kind of depending on the other things that are going on in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, like having young children was much harder for me to do this work than it is now that my kids are teenagers and adults, you know? Um, So how long have you been doing it then? I started attending births in 2007. And how old are your kids Clay was born in 2007. Oh, wow. And I started doing postpartum work in 2002, 2003, and August was born in 2002, so. Okay, so you've been working with mamas since 2002. Yeah. And you started attending births in 2007. And you're not counting August's birth? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> I don't count my own births as right. doula births, although okay. obviously they taught me some things about birth. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you got into this kind of work to begin with? So before I became a doula, I worked as a sexual assault survivor, an intimate partner violence um, survivor advocate in hospitals. So first I started working um, in New Mexico, which had just launched a new sexual assault nurse examiners unit and had a hotline um, where, you know, volunteers staff that to to respond to people. Um, So I I worked there. And then um, when I moved to New York, I started working um, through another similar organization that did similar kinds of work. So when I, I guess, was eight months pregnant with August, I went on my last call and I was like at a hospital that I was ultimately going to give birth in, you know, just on a different floor of that same hospital, like helping somebody navigate their choices, their decisions, also the kinds of like institutions and policies and, um, you know, in this case also like not just the hospital, but like the police, you know, there's a whole sort of dynamic of these kinds of things. And, and then I gave birth a month later. 
and nothing terrible happened to me or anything. Like I had a good birth, like in so many ways, August birth was very straightforward and good. But I think, I think anybody who has given birth might say that like birth never really feels that straightforward. Like it mm-hmm. always feels huge and intense and sometimes maybe scary and overwhelming. And, you know, you have all these sorts, it's, it's all of the above. Yeah. And do you have memory of it feeling like that right after it happened? Or is it like, in hindsight, I felt like I say. was on a roller coaster the whole time, sort yeah. of, of like okay. my own emotions of trying mm-hmm. to be like, I'm, I'm excited that I'm in labor. I want to do this. This is super hard and overwhelming. I feel scared. You know, mm-hmm. my care provider was lovely, but had like four patients in labor at the same time. So I was so happy when she was there, but then she would leave for long stretches and mm-hmm. that felt really you were intimidating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just my partner and I. And so that experience of giving birth really made me feel like the kind of advocacy work that I was doing for people literally on another floor of the same space where I was giving birth and that people who were having babies needed that kind of Mm. non-judgmental, non-prescriptive, like this is your experience. I honor whatever you want to do, but also don't like work for this institution. So I'm not like bound to their kinds of things and I don't really have any agenda. I'm just here to to care give. Mm -hmm. Um, And that caregiving is A, something I've always you know, really has resonated with me in in how I like to be with people. And also I feel like is such an important thing to like hold space for somebody to take care of them in a really intense moment in their lives, I mm-hmm. think but why, is incredibly valuable. Why transition out of what you were doing into uh, being a labor doula? Um, I think that giving birth made me feel like birth was this incredibly compelling moment in people's lives that, you know, I think in so many ways, like, Prior to, you know, working in sexual assault work, I had worked, you know, as a peer advocate for Planned Parenthood. I had, you know, been a clinic escort for abortion clinics. Like Mm -hmm. I had worked, you know, importing birth control pills into northern Mexico through like a women's co-op. Like I had always been involved in and interested in women's reproductive health. And I grew up in a family where that was huge. Like my mom took my Girl Scout troop to march on Washington for reproductive rights in the 80s. You know, like we took a 17 hour bus trip from Madison, Wisconsin to do that. And then I got pregnant and I was like, how the fuck do I not know anything about pregnancy mm, and birth? Wow. Like, why is there this actually enormous gap in my knowledge? Like I know so much about reproductive health in all these other ways. Like I could talk to you about, you know, your options for ending a pregnancy, your options for not getting pregnant. Like I could talk Mm -hmm. about all these things, but then I found myself pregnant and was like, I don't really actually know what's happening inside my body. I don't really understand what the dynamic of this is. I don't really know much about birth. I actually have no idea how to feed my baby with my body, like all of these things Mm -hmm. that like theoretically should have been familiar to me because I was so steeped in this world Mm -hmm. were actually wildly foreign to me. And that I think for me in part made birth feel like this incredibly compelling moment too, Mm -hmm. where like helping people navigate something that like is so routinely not talked about or like talked about wrong. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, it's, it's a, it has a fixed notion of how it's supposed to be. Yeah. And, and just like, that for so many of us, it's this moment where we have to do a crash course and that mm-hmm. feels intense. Totally. And that like having actual guidance in that rather than like crowdsourcing it randomly feels really compelling, like to be able to be with somebody in that kind of way. And for me, like having done, you know, this on-call work already with survivors, you know, a lot of the pieces of it were familiar, but obviously getting to like 
have time to prepare with people. Like it's very different than, you know, working with survivors. Like I work with my clients for months and months and months before mm -hmm. they give birth. I work with them for months and months and months after they give birth. It's a very different kind of engagement. Mm -hmm. And also I had done a lot of pediatric sexual assault work and I think having a kid really shifted my ability to hold space in the right way for people at that moment. Like that actually before I had a child, I feel like I was much better at holding space for people as they navigated what it looked mm -hmm. like. Because in pediatric work, you're working a lot with parents, like, mm -hmm. you know? And I think having a kid change some of that for me. And I think it's important to recognize when you are no longer able to hold the kind of space that you need to for people and yeah. to step away so that you're not a caregiver who's giving bad care. Okay. <sighs> Thanks. I'm sorry. It's okay. So I'm very curious as to how you got into that work. But I do want to focus on your work as a doula. So if anyone's interested, contact Megan yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's big to be able to recognize that and make that transition. So what is life as a doula like? Like, yeah. before I met you, like, you were referred to me via Anne Saxelby. May she rest in peace. Yeah. Now you'll make me cry. <laughs> There are napkins. <laughs> napkins for everyone. <laughs> napkins for everyone. Um, and as you said, it's a crash course. Like, I'm a woman. I was like, and I, my sisters had, I don't know how many kids at that point by the time I got pregnant. And it was like, and then I got pregnant. And it was like, and I've studied like embryo, um, embryological development. Like, I know theoretically, not theoretically, I know scientifically what's supposed to happen. And then when it came to, I was like, what can I do? Like, what are the things I'm not supposed to eat? Like, how am I supposed to function? Like, I, there were so many questions that I was like, why can't I have soft cheeses? Like, why, why can't I have sushi? Right? All these things. And there were the exact things I was craving. All these things. It was like, I had, as you say, it was a crash course in like, how, how do I not know how to do this? And then I talked to you and you're asking me all these questions that I didn't even Think to think about, like, you know, what kind of care do I want in during labor? Um, where do I want to give birth at home in a hospital? Do I want a C-section? It was like, I know all the stuff, I, I know some things now that it just didn't occur to me before. So part of what you do is educational. Yeah. Right. Um, especially for the first time mom who ha does not have much experience, even though we're women. I just can't get over the fact that I'm a woman. And I was like, I was still I still felt at sea and lost as to like what to do. So I don't think very much in our lives up until we're pregnant mm -hmm. routinely prepares us for birth. Right. I think that most of us do not have very much real exposure to or interaction with or understanding of mm -hmm. what's going on for people when they're pregnant or giving mm -hmm. birth and that like the you know m maybe you actually have a more intimate experience with somebody who you were friends with or something but but mostly not right yeah. mostly people have a little bit of tv knowledge mm -hmm. they've maybe heard a story or two mm -hmm. um and mostly that information is you know either somewhere in the spectrum of just wildly inaccurate, like your average, you know, sitcom birth doesn't give you much information right. about what's going to happen right. in birth. Push! <laughs> you know, your water breaks and then you're screaming and then you're like, you did this to me! You know, it's, you know that's, that right. is not what birth looks like. Right. And then what information we have is also very particular, right? So like even if you ask your sister everything about all her births. And even if she told you all of it, right. even if she gave you every detail about those experiences, 
that may actually have no bearing on what your experience is. And I think right. then that becomes the other challenging thing, right, is that birth is something we do with our bodies, which means it's very particular to us in terms of what our bodies are like, but also we bring our whole histories of ourselves to birth, right? We bring our histories of pain and pleasure of loss of mm -hmm. like, you know, all the good stuff, all the hard stuff, like, right. Birth isn't just something that people, it, it isn't just a biological function in our bodies, right. It's always everywhere marked as this like major social and emotional experience of our lives too. It's this like threshold too, right. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of it, something happens, right? Like <laughs> right. you you give birth to a child, typically. Right. And it's the definition of binary. It's zero or zero one, right? right. And at the end, you've got a zero one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and that- I mean, ideally, ideally. At the yeah. End, I mean, one. right. There's always that, there's that potential at least, right? right. And right. sometimes that potential isn't, it doesn't come to, to pass, but like even right. then that's a really marked experience in our lives, right? And that, that reproduction, however you do it, whether there's, you know, whether there's, adoption or surrogacy right. or loss mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. you know all these pieces like it, it is something that you, it happens to your body in a way that you never unbecome that person yes to put it mildly <laughs> it's a super simple way of saying parenthood is it yeah it's just whatever parenthood or not parenthood like pregnancy it's like it changes your entire experience after that whatever the end result of that pregnancy yeah. is Okay, so we started with, what's life like as a doula? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. I think it's an interesting one because I think there's something important about being honest about the challenges of being a doula, right? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people, for example, come into this work who've never done doula work and are very like, you know, I love the idea of being with people in birth or I love babies or, or these kinds of things. Yeah, can and you like, do it next Tuesday at 2 p.m., please? Because right. that's when I'm available. And those, those <laughs> kinds of feelings you know, are important. But I mean, I always like to remind people loving babies has very little to do with being a labor doula because you really, it, you know, my interaction with the babies is minimal, big picture. Um, you're really helping, you know, parents. God, I don't think you even held grace that first day. I think you no, didn't hold I, grace until you came to visit. I, you know, I mean, because it's, there's, I mean, a, there's other much more important people there to hold grace, right? Like, right. grace is with her people. And like, you know, well, I'm I've not the holding, center of that. I was holding her for nine months in my womb. Right. Like, I could have, like, I could have forfeited her for a moment. <laughs> but I think that those early moments are also about, you know, becoming parents and becoming a family. And like, that that, you know, for me... One of the really important roles of doulas is knowing how to like sort of step forward and step back, you know, mm -hmm. how to take up space when somebody really needs you to like advocate and help and like be present and how to like not take up that space when somebody needs you to just hold space for them to do whatever it is that they need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so being a doula is, you know, for me is, you know, I wake up every morning and there's a bunch of text messages. And so I answer those and I check my email and then I get out of bed and then I, you know, have a series of meetings with people either in person or, you know, on the phone or video. And at any moment, if somebody, you know, calls and says, I think my water just broke or I feel like contractions are starting or we just had a non-stress test and it wasn't so great and the doctors are sending me to the hospital to like evaluate more, right? That any moment I might pivot. I always tell people it's an occupational hazard that I cancel a lot of appointments. I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm sorry, yep. <laughs> you know, but at any moment I might sort of pivot that. And so whatever that looks like, whether that's, you know, that it's Christmas or it's my kid's birthday or I didn't have anything planned today um, or I'm canceling meetings or something like then you potentially you know, sort of shift and and do something else. So I, I leave my house in the middle of the night a lot. I, you know, sometimes go to a birth for 
like eight or 10 hours would be a really short birth. And sometimes you're there for like, you know, I think the longest I've ever been is 56 hours. Oh my God. That's, that's a long time. A mother can be in birth for that long? Yeah, people can labor for, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours, depending on what's going on. I thought 24 was not healthy. Uh, well, you're probably thinking about like how long your water can oh, be broken for yeah. before we start to worry about an increased risk of of infection. Mm-hmm. Um, and Which even is- that's not a hard and fast rule. But but no, I mean, labor itself. Yeah. You know, especially with your first baby, sometimes people have really long early labors where their body is negotiating how to move a baby through their pelvis, right? Like humans... Our birth is much more complicated for us because we do things like walk upright, and you know mm-hmm. we we made birth harder by having big brained babies and right or sitting down for long and, periods of time. But I mean, even just like the shape of our pelvis sure. compared to like you know yeah. earlier humans and mm-hmm. like you know non human ancestors is just uh, birth for humans requires a rotational delivery. Mm-hmm. Like babies have to rotate through the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just very different. And that that's a function of a, f- a series of things like walking upright and mm-hmm. um, changes in our stature related to being able to exist in larger environmental contexts um, and then having big brained babies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those three things just mean that the baby has to really navigate the pelvis yeah. in this very dynamic yeah. way. And yeah. so sometimes birth is fast yeah. um, and sometimes birth is slow. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it's both, right? Sometimes it's really slow, and then it gets fast, or it's really fast, and then it gets slow, and you know, yeah. But I'm also thinking just... about how once upon a time, I, I, my, in my idyllic mind, um, that we were much more active people and developing um, intrinsic the intrinsic muscles to make it possible to give birth somewhat comfortably, even though our brains are bigger and. For many people, that's just not the case. They're like sitting the majority of the day, and it's like, and you, the only time you work out your muscles is when you're walking. And it's like, then how are you? Like that was my biggest fear before I, you know, gave birth. It was like, how do I? I mean, it sounds it may sound silly now, but like at the time, I was like, how do I prepare my body to? Oh, I, oh, I think I asked you about this. How do I prepare my body for birthing? And you, and you reminded me. What you say to all moms, I'm sure, of like, we've been doing this for millennia. Like, yeah. you'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, and I think that there's something really important about that because I think we often compare birth to things that are really athletic, right? Mm-hmm. So we say things like birth is a marathon, you know? But the vast majority of people never run marathons. And right. most of us actually probably physically could not without a lot of training mm-hmm. and maybe could not just ever. Yeah. Um, and birth's not like that, right? 80% mm-hmm. of people who were born with uteruses give birth in their lifetime. Like, what? 80%? Yeah. That's as like high as that. Most of us. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's something important about also remembering that, like, we give birth on our bodies. And, like, if you can be in your body, if you can, like, live in your body, if you can, mm-hmm. you know, walk in your body, if you can, you know, lay down your body, like, you can give birth in your body. That mm-hmm. it is not this feat of athleticism, actually. Mm. But that it can be complicated because even if you do all the right things, right? Even if you're super active, even if you're, you know, do every single exercise every day and you are like, you know, ready, like fetal position, for example, size and shape of pelvis, like these are all really related to things that are much more complicated than just your own mobility, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. while we can, you know, while we can try to do things that make us feel prepared because (laughs) it feels good to feel prepared, that actually birth is something that asks us all to like meet 
ourselves where we're at. Like that it is this sort of humbling experience where we all are asked to kind of just go with the unpredictability and intensity and and sometimes wonderfulness and sometimes overwhelmingness of meeting ourselves where we're at and figuring out how to be here in that moment. And that that's hugely varied, right? And birth, right. I mean, I tell all my clients, right, birth is totally unpredictable. I have no idea how long it's going to take you to give birth. I have no idea what it's going to be like for mm -hmm. you. I don't know how you're going to, like, we can talk about statistics, you know, yeah. what's the statistical likelihood you're going right. to have a vaginal delivery or something, but, like, that doesn't mean anything about your own experience, right? Your and own this experience. this is after 760, about 760 yeah. births. Yeah. It's amazing to me the aspect of your job where it's, like, yes, non-judgmental, yes, holding space, holding the space. Let's just stop there. Like, okay. and what all of that means and like seeing, seeing people at their most vulnerable potentially and all the stuff that comes out during those moments Yeah, and how you can continue to hold space. Like, what is it, what is it about you or like, how is it that you prepare yourself to be able to do that? Well, I think that what it means to hold space for somebody is to you know, put aside your own kind of like opinions or thoughts or what you would do with your own body, right? It's, it's a practice of being able to honor somebody else as their own authority and to be able to recognize that whether or not it's what you would do or how you would do things or what you think it would be like in your own body or whatever, that like you hold that space of authority for somebody else to step into their own and to do what they need to do for themselves. And I think that that's something that most of us don't practice in our lives, meaning most of us, for example, like in our friendships, in our family relationships, in these kinds of things, not only are those folks often not really holding space for us per se, we often don't even want them to, right? You mm -hmm. actually go to your sister maybe because you want her opinion or because you, you know, want your friend to tell you like, what's the right thing for me to do in this moment? Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, but that in those moments where what we really want is just for somebody to hold space, a lot of us have never practiced it. And so we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to put ourselves aside. We don't know how to like be a container for somebody right. else's experience. Right. And, or you, and you need your friend to be able, you need to be able to say to like, if I were to call you, like, Megan, I just need you to listen to me. Like, yeah. I need to tell you ahead of time, like, please right. hold this space for me. Right. Versus telling you like my problem and then you helping me try to figure it out. Right. I was like, that's not what I'm looking right. for. Right. And that I think is, you know, in the best versions of our other relationships in our lives, maybe we have people who who will say to us, what do you need from me right now? Mm -hmm. Right. And they can say, like, do you want do you want my opinion? Do you want me to validate your experience here? Do you want like what what do you actually need from me right now? Mm -hmm. Rather than jumping into what they think you need. Right. And I think being a doula is a really it, it's a moment where you practice that a lot and where you think about not only what it looks like to hold space for somebody to like, you know, honor their own experience, but also what. How people make, you know, I'm an anthropologist by my training and we love like, you know, origin stories and oral histories and things like that. And I, so you, know, you should get your bachelor's in that or master's? Or? I have a bachelor's and master's and a PhD in anthropology. Oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. Um, <laughs> the things that never come out <laughs> when I'm so focused on being pregnant. <laughs> well, right, because I'm, I'm holding space for you, right? Um, right. But, you know, I think that one of the things we see in birth, right, is that people are also creating narratives in their lives that talk to themselves about what, you know, what their origin of being parents are, about what it was like to do this hard thing in their bodies, about successes or senses of failure, about 
you know, potential about loss, about empowerment, about, you know, like people are also creating a narrative in their own birth experiences that isn't just the the details of what happened, but about how they felt and how it made them feel about themselves or their partners or the other people who are with them or whatnot. So I think, you know, for me, doula work is also about trying and not always succeeding, I'm sure, but about really also trying to hold space for thinking about what's happening inside of somebody else's story of themselves and how what we say to people and how we guide or don't guide, how we hold that kind of container also becomes a part of that story for them, right? So that like when, like when I'm with somebody who just gave birth, for example, this is just a simple example, but like I'm with somebody who just gave birth and they're trying to feed their baby from their body for the first time. And a nurse casually says to them like, oh, it's probably harder for the baby to latch on because your nipples are so flat. That that becomes an actual narrative that somebody is now holding about their body, right? It becomes like a truth that they then hold on to. And I will watch people then repeat that over and over again. They'll be like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this because of how my nipples are, right? And that that became, like, so quickly it became a part of who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think in our most vulnerable moments, it's really important to remember how much we hold on to those kinds of things. And that maybe in other points of your life or in other contexts, right, like if you walked into the bodega and some guy there said some random thing about you, you might just, like, whatever, roll right off of that and right. keep it going. It wouldn't become a part of who you are. But that especially in these really intense, vulnerable moments, in these clinical contexts, in yeah. these like heightened states, that often we do take that stuff much more. And so there is also a piece of really trying to help make sure we we not just hold space, but also are really conscious of how what's happening for people in that moment is also a part of them thinking about who they are as people, as parents, as, you know, as partners and all these kinds of things. And so that's this other piece, I think, that of holding space that's so important, right? That we that we honor the whole big picture, too, of what's happening for people. And, and sometimes that means we correct things, right? That we're like, your nipples are great and they're totally going to work. And like, here's what we're going to do. And like, everybody's body is what their body is. And we just meet where that where we're at and we mm -hmm. figure out how to work with that. Uh, instead of this like narrative that there's mm -hmm. something wrong with you, mm -hmm. you know. I wonder how much of like we talked about it's sleep is like the easy topic to tackle as to like sure. why there's burnout in being a labor doula. But I'm wondering if it's actually that. I mean, I think that doulas like to talk about the sleep, the chaos of the schedules, the um, you know, challenges of working in sometimes somewhat hostile contexts where like, you know, we are we are not necessarily always the most welcome part of a birth team, you know, oh, really? in hospitals or things. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually we are, but like, it, you know, sometimes advocating not. for people with inside institutions sometimes means pushing back on things that, mm -hmm. that, you know, is not, is not always easy. But I do think that ultimately the real core of doing this work is about what it feels like for you to be a caregiver. And I think that, that that is what, I think that it's easy to say what burned you out was sleeping too mm -hmm. little. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to say what burned you out was that it's it's a lot of work to be a container for a lot of people all at once and mm -hmm. to and to figure out how you hold space for people, but also don't have that be, you know, that there there, there is a space where you need to have hold space for yourself, too, in all that. Right. And like, what is what is what is you mm -hmm. and what is, you know, the. I mean, I might have as many as 100 clients at a time who are variously navigating you know, feeding, sleeping, pregnancy, testing, birth, 
you know, vaginal wounds, like the whole spectrum of stuff that's happening to people from, you know, from nausea to weaning and, you mm -hmm. know. And, you know, so you, there's also, I think it, it takes a certain kind of personality to be able to compartmentalize that a little bit and hold space for a lot of people while also being like, this is this is what my life is like. And yeah. This other piece. I'm like, yeah. even trying to hold this information in my head, I'm like, I don't, like, my my mind is kind of burning because I'm like, how do you do this, Megan? <laughs> like, well, it's like a different kind of, I mean, A, I think... I think the core of it is I feel exceptionally grateful to do this work, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is work that I chose. I Like my clients laugh and be like, this is insane that this is what you do. I cannot believe this is your job. Right. And I always remind people I'm employable. Like I could have a different job. I have a PhD in anthropology, for example. I could <laughs> become an academic, you know? Yeah. And I choose this. And I think that that is this important part of this work is to like honor all the time that you choose it. And mm -hmm. then it's actually... I feel super grateful that people invite me into their experiences, right? That like being with people in their birth experiences is really an honor and a privilege in a huge way. And like being somebody who, you know, somebody wants to talk about their vaginal wound or their nipples or their lack of sleep or their, you know, Burning nausea nipples. or whatever, like <laughs> that actually that's a really privileged thing, right? That people are, are giving you a kind of vulnerability that most of us do not give to anyone else in our lives often. Yeah. Like so many of the people who I interact with are not having those conversations with their friends or mm -hmm. their moms or their sisters or things like that. If it, it, Or they're having partially versions of that. But like mm -hmm. it's actually a real privilege and honor to be trusted in that kind of way. And so I think for me, you know, there's a lot of remembering that like this work is hard and intense, but it also gives back in a huge way. Like through the whole pandemic, you know, having to walk past morgue trucks to get into the hospital and stuff, like it was a nightmare in many ways. And yet I was with people who were having babies. Like when everyone else was locked in their apartment, you know, reading about the end of the world, you know, I was <laughs> right. still like, okay, but people are still having babies in the middle of all this. And it was scary and it was intense and it, you know, all different in all sorts of ways. But like this work does give a lot back, you know. <sighs> Where do we go? <laughs> like, that was everything. I'm like, I'm cool. I mean, I want to ask you so much more, but that was like already so much. <laughs> like, and we're not even that far in. You get me going and I'm like, I'll go. tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, so so why did you choose to write your book? Forgive me. I don't, um, I have the book everywhere in my mind, but I just, all I see is the baby in the swaddle. Yeah, <laughs> like, your birth plan. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> you know, your birth plan is, it was, was a funny project for me because I, you know, I've been a doula for a long time and obviously helping my clients navigate their sources of information is a huge thing for me. You mm -hmm. know, people are like, what book should I read? What podcast should I listen to? What movie should I watch? What, you know, what All the source? things of trying to get prepared for something that we are already ready to do. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, and that helps us sort of think about, I mean, people are looking for examples. They're looking for models. They're mm -hmm. looking for ways to feel like they understand what's going to happen to them mm -hmm. while also acknowledging that like you can only understand it so much you know right and so for years my clients would be you know like what book should i read and i'd be like well <laughs> here's the caveat on this one here's the caveat on that one here's the cat you know and they were pretty big caveats you know like i was like 
this book might make you feel really judged about this or that or the other thing or might make it seem like making this choice is a really bad choice. But this book is better if you're sort of leaning this way. But they've also got all this stuff that's like, you know, not good either. You know, and I spent a lot of time sort of like doing that with people. (laughs) And then for like three years, I was like, I have this concept for a book that somebody should write. And I kept trying to pitch it to people. Right. I'd have clients who were writers or things Uh and I'd be Uh like, why don't you write it? You should write this book, Bob. <laughs> this would be a great idea. This would be such a good book. Here's what it's like. Here's the concept. Here's how you weave it together. Here's what I'm thinking. And people would always be like, it sounds like you should write this book. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not, I don't want to write this book. And yeah. all my writing to date prior to that was also really academic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had written my dissertation. I had written journal articles and things. And writing in a non-academic way was intimidating in some levels, even though obviously it's different. I it interact is. with my clients. Yeah, but you know. interacting and getting it down the page and having it sound natural is is in fact a skill. Yeah, yeah, because there is that there is that risk of you're in your head, yeah. and so you want to like over intellectualize it, and you want to make yourself sound smart, and then before you know it, you're writing an academic paper, which right. is like so dense and incomprehensible, and so yeah. uh, was it. Um, Unaccessible. Yeah. 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 So I eventually, like my friend Lisa Jean was like, I'm going to write a book and I want to have a book writing group to help Mm. keep us inspired. Who else wants to write a book? And I was like, maybe I want to write a book with you. Uh, Maybe I'll write a book too. And Lisa Jean is this powerhouse of a human being. Like, I just don't know how else to describe Lisa Jean, but just like the most incredible force of nature, the most loving human being, the most like generous, like she's just, she's all of that. She's the real deal. And she's a sociologist and she's written a bunch of books. And so at the time she was writing a book called, that ultimately came out called Catch and Release, which is about horseshoe crabs. It's a super cool book. Definitely check it out. Catch and release um, about horseshoe crabs. It's about yes. horseshoe crabs. Thank you. And how we bleed horseshoe crabs to be able to make tests that help us make sterile equipment for medical industry and what, you know, what that process looks like. Right? Wow. We Yeah, we harvest horseshoe crabs. We take their blood and then we use that blood in the sterilization. Anytime you've ever had an IV, anytime you've ever had a shot, like horseshoe crabs are to thank for that. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so cool. Lisa Jean is writing this book about... Horseshoe crabs. You should totally interview her. She's incredible. Yes, please. Um, and and so I'm like, okay, I'll write this book too. And then we brought a couple of other folks into the writing group. And we had this amazing writing group, which was super, super helpful in the process. And then Lisa Jean was like, you know, you have to find a publisher. You have to find an agent. You have to, you know, she's, this was like her sixth book. So she like was oh, my book doula yeah. in this huge way, right? Yeah, like yeah. she was my guide. Um, And so I reached out to this woman who had had a couple of babies with me um, and was like, hey, just like, can I pay you to sort of tell me how this industry works to give me some like familiarity to help me like get my feet wet and what I'm even looking at here if I want to try and write a book? Mm -hmm. And who, what was that person's uh, position in the industry? Well, at the, when she had given birth, she was an editor Uh for like a major company. And so I was reaching out to her and was thinking like, well, maybe you could give me some like tips on how this works. But unbeknownst to me, she'd become a literary agent in the in the interim. Um, and she works for this agency, Aisha Panda, which is this amazing literary agency. Um, and so Anjali, the woman, she, you know, I pitched this idea and she was like, yeah, let's do it. I'll help you do it. And amazing. she did. She was incredible. The agency was incredible. Um, the authors they represent are incredible. Like, I'm 
definitely out of my league in that crew, but I feel Are you very, very, very <laughs> grateful. I appreciate your, your humility, but like all of your knowledge, you just put down on paper that, yeah. that you're a specialist in your own field. Yeah. And writing the book was hard, obviously. Like yeah. it took several years. I mean, I did it alongside doing being a doula. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get a lot of feedback from people that, you know, I'm sure the book isn't for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I use all non-gendered terminology and I've mm-hmm. gotten some pushback from a few folks who were like, you know, you shouldn't erase women from the process of giving birth or whatever. And I'm like, sure, nobody thinks we're erasing women from the process of giving birth by making more space for everybody. You know, so I've gotten some pushback from folks for whom it's not, you know, it's mm. not their thing. And, and that's fine. I, you know, never expect it to be for everyone. But there, when I hear yeah. from people who are like, I, I read this story, I read what you wrote about this, and it like made me feel different about my experience in this mm. way, right? When people mm. are like, I read how you said that, you know, I didn't need to become somebody different than who I was in order to have this baby. And that like, what I needed to do was tap into who I already was. And that changed my whole thinking about how to prepare for birth. Or, you know, I will hear from people from all over. People will write me emails from like everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's been really beautiful and gratifying because it also feels like a way to, you know, I can only doula so many people, yeah, right? Like, right. you know, I, can, I take five clients a month. And she um, only works nine months out of the year, folks. <laughs> yes, I take five clients a month. Well, theoretically, I take five clients a month, nine months of the year, although last year I went to 57 births. So if you do the math, you know that there's something <laughs> wrong there. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a limited number of people who I can support. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I support some other folks with classes or with consults or, you know, I offer people the option to just be able to text me or like, so there's maybe some other folks, you know, in the mix of that. But like, I, I can't help, you know, I'm not, I my reach is not that big. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the book is also the, this really nice way to to try and contribute to a larger culture of birth yeah. for people who are giving birth and also for people who are helping people have babies, right? Like when, yeah. when doulas read my book and maybe... It gives them a perspective that they didn't get in, like, their trainings or things like that. You know, I feel like maybe it recalibrates something a little bit in a way that is good. For your whole your whole uh, profession. Yeah. And that, like, you know, it's just a tiny ripple. Like, I'm not, I'm not changing the world. Well, I love uh, what Obama says. It's like, you want to turn a ship, you got to turn the ship slowly. <laughs> right? Otherwise, sure. it'll capsize. Yes, yeah? that is true. So it sounds, so yes, you wrote this book, Your Birth Plan. Please check it out. Everyone, doulas will get in touch with you, and it's been helpful to them. But are you? And yes, you you can only service so many labors because you're one person. Yeah. Are you shepherding doulas, uh, labor doulas, into the career as well? I do some amount of mentoring, and I've shifted gears back and forth along the way. Like I've had moments where I was mentoring a lot of doulas and was really um, doing that work a lot, and I've had moments where I was not really mentoring anyone, mm-hmm. and I've sort of gone back and forth on what that looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's work that I really enjoy doing on some level, and also I feel like mentorship relationships need to be well-matched. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's also the sort of challenge of, like, who do you find – like, how do you find the people who are the people who are good for you to mentor? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So but it's also ideally they're finding you too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do some of that work and mm-hmm. I certainly enjoy doing it. Um, but, you know, most of my work is is really directly with clients. Mm-hmm. What is it that you, you know, going back to the that there's a high turnover 
in your industry, yeah. in your profession? Like, what is it? Um, I mean, as you say, as we've said, we could say it's asleep, and it's like the challenges of like. <laughs> I think that um, I think that one of the things that's maybe useful for people to understand about doula work is that there's also a low threshold for entry. And so, mean? well, like what it takes to call yourself a doula or be a doula mm. is actually very, very minimal, Got meaning it. it's not a licensed or regulated industry. Which kills me because everything you just said about the work that you do, right. how is it that just anybody can like walk into this? Yeah. So doula work is really, you know, it's very consumer driven, meaning mm. the the onus of who you invite into your birth is really placed entirely on the on the people who are having babies mm. and the industry itself is not regulated. Like, you know, you're a massage therapist outside of being a podcaster and that's a really regulated industry. You had to it do is, certain but types it's not, of- But it's not enforced, unfortunately. Yeah, but you had to do certain types yes. of education. You have to maintain a license. There mm-hmm. are theoretically pretty strict boundaries on your behavior right. in those contexts. And whether whether it's enforced or not, that it exists as at yes. least a, a parameter. Yeah. Nothing like that exists for doulas. Like you guys, I could, we, you could be doulas tomorrow and you could- Tomorrow? How about right now? Yeah, today, whatever, <laughs> right now. I'm, and anybody could print a certification and say, wow. okay, here now I certify you and you're a doula, yeah. right? It's not a regulated industry. So, so in practice, there are a lot of doula organizations mm. that are doing, you know, relatively robust trainings and that are trying to sort of help people be as prepared as possible. Mm-hmm. But I think a challenge of a doula training industry much like maybe any training industry, is that, you know, as a trainer, you make your money off of people signing up to train. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that your income is really generated by attracting the broadest, right. biggest scope of people into right. that work, whether or not they ultimately will be good at the and work. Being able to boast about your the finishing rate. Right, right. And so that's very different from, like, turning out an amazing group of doulas who mm-hmm. have the skills and personalities and whatever to- mm-hmm. Or to, the preparation yeah, to be able to- to be able to work in this field. I mean, when I trained for the first organization that I did sexual assault survivor work with, it was a very different process, right? Like they took in a lot of people and they like whittled us down over time, mm-hmm. right? And you had to do like a lot of things and like, you know, you didn't actually have access to to people until you had been through a lot wow. of, okay. of the process. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from doula work, right, where it's like most people are doing like a three-day-long workshop. They're taking some childbirth classes. They're reading five books, um, maybe. To get them ready to hold space for people at their most vulnerable. Yeah, and then they're just looking for clients. And what that means is that a a lot of what makes a doula great in the beginning is their personality, is is like – how they are as a caregiver, how they are as a space holder, and those mm-hmm. kinds of things, which are not necessarily taught in these classes, but are just maybe something that they either came with or didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, part of what happens in doula work, right, is with this really low threshold for entry, you know, people who are trying to figure out who they want to be, what they want to do, it's, mm-hmm. it's a relatively easy path to at least dip your foot in. Mm-hmm. And then I think sometimes people dip their foot in, they're like, well, I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not actually the work I want to do. And so I think, you know, part of the turnover probably has to do with also just such a huge number of people who, mm-hmm. you know, deciding to be a, a nurse, for example, mm-hmm. that's not an easy thing to dip your foot into, right? You mm-hmm. have to do like years of education and like get certified, like, you right. know, even being a massage therapist, it's not like a, you couldn't become one next week. Right. Right. You'd have to put in a almost, lot of hours. Right. Almost two years of education yeah. in New York State and, and take a test. Right. And that's just not what it's like to be a doula. Right. And so okay. it's sort of the Wild West in Got some it. ways, right? Like yeah. the... 
So we say you? there's high turnover, but it's simply because there's so many people who like get out of the gate. Yeah. You know, get, you know, getting through the gate, it's not that hard. And then I think from there, like one, once you are in this work, then sometimes people become other versions, meaning mm. sometimes doulas go back to school to become nurses or midwives mm-hmm. or they become birth assistants, um, you know, for home birth midwives and do mm-hmm. that kind of work. Or mm-hmm. they decide that they like working in like perinatal spaces. They like working with people who are pregnant or something, but mm-hmm. they actually want to do it in a more structured way. So they're doing prenatal yoga or they become massage therapists or they, you know, like working in the postpartum space. So they do postpartum work exclusively or become sleep consultants or go back to school and become a therapist mm-hmm. who helps people in the childbearing so, years, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, that, yeah. that birth workers as yeah. this larger sort of context of people who are working with people in this sort of larger window of their mm-hmm. lives, you know, that doula work is sometimes also a entry point for becoming mm-hmm. a birth worker in some other capacity. That was a long list of potential professions <laughs> on which to pivot from being yeah. a, a birth doula. Yeah. So what is the range? And I guess one wouldn't know until they do that entry-level position of not to say that being a doula is like beans, but like. No, but when you first show up in it, yeah. And and then all of a sudden you're in that environment and then you see the, the wide range of professions that are involved in the birthing process aside from the uh, uh, OB. Yeah. Right. right. So – What's the range of your care? Like, I call you my labor and delivery doula, yeah. my birth doula. But it sounds like there's a lot of, like, you know, all the, when you're talking about your clients and their testing, like. Yeah, I mean, I work with a lot of my clients from very early in pregnancy. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes I work with my clients from before they're pregnant, right? They're oh, yeah. they're okay. looking to get pregnant. They're thinking about their options. Oh, really? I didn't. I thought. Yeah. I thought you were the person I call after I get pregnant. I didn't realize. No, I that. talk to people about the whole the yeah, whole game of it, shebang. right? And yeah. sometimes that means you know my clients reach out to me and then they have a miscarriage, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of pregnancies end in miscarriages. That would be so, my first one. Yeah. So sometimes we're navigating that. And I think that was my sec- my third one too. I think I called you for that one too. Yeah. 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 Sometimes we're navigating that and like talking through what that looks like in your body and then getting pregnant again. And then I work with my clients on like, you know, where they want to give birth and care providers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like thinking about sort of their choices and options. And and then I'm with people, you know, through the whole pregnancy in terms of like education and support and like preparation um, for afterwards and, and things like that. And then I'm with people in the actual births itself. Mm-hmm. And then most of my clients, right, I hear from them on and off easily for a year or more as they're navigating, like, feeding, sleeping, life as a parent, you know, looking for resources for maybe they need a therapist or they want to see a nutritionist or they want a sleep consultant or Mm -hmm. they just, you know, my client Nancy calls it a Meganing. She just just wants to talk to me (laughs) (laughs) about how things are going. Yeah, well, a Meganing. Is that random or do you guys schedule that? No, she she would be like, I need a Meganing. Or she'll be like, I asked for a Meganing for my birthday. So uh, (laughs) this is the money and now give me a Meganing. That's awesome. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Oh, forgive me. You were talking about holding space for yourself. Yeah. What does that look like for you? Well, it's interesting. I think that when people are struggling with doula work, that's often really hard for them. Mm -hmm. And people are needing to do a lot of self-care things to sort of feel okay. And you'll see that with people, especially if they're having a hard time being in this work where they're like, after I go to birth, I need to like do all these things to like sort of take care of myself. And and I have less of that. I think I transition really easily between those things. But I definitely, you know, I have a lot of support because I have 
you know, work really closely with some other doulas, in particular my partner, Stephanie. So we are able to sort of like process and talk through and like think about, you know, challenges or highs and lows or whatever. Ah, she's um, become a partner. I thought she, you were mentoring her at some well, point? Well, yeah, very early on in the process, right? I started mm. off as her mentor um, like 13 years ago. Oh, wow. But now she's been to like 600 plus births. So we really nice. just are yeah. partners and yeah. best friends. Yeah. You know, I have I have a partner myself, my husband, you know, who obviously like we often joke that doula work is the family business, right? Because it sort of affects everybody in this mm -hmm. huge way. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there is a lot of like people who help take care of me when, you know, like if I come home after being at a birth for 40 hours, it's not like like You're... people are taking care of me <laughs> in that moment, then, right? People are making some space for me to sleep or they're making some food for me or they're like rubbing my feet or like, you know, giving me the sort of like, there, there, little bunny, go to sleep kind of moment, <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, so that I definitely have a lot of that in my own life too, right? Mm. Where where there are people who take care of me and sort of hold that space for me if I need. Yeah. And, and mostly... Being a doula isn't hard for me. I mean, which is, I think, part of why I've stayed in it, right? That, like, I enjoy it. I, I don't feel, like, overly taxed by holding space for people or mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and I can kind of, like, pretty easily go between, like, You're flexible. my life and yeah. being, you know, being supporting people in their lives. Yeah. And how, I imagine so much of that is due to uh, you've been doing it for as long as your kids have been alive. Yeah. I mean, definitely it's always been part of their yeah. lives. And – I and joke that my sons probably know more about birth than most pregnant people. <laughs> probably. Um, and the fact that your husband is also so down to, like, hold space for you. Like, I yeah. – how is it that you were able to maintain being on call all the time when you had young kids or when you even had a baby? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of help, right? Like, you have to have on-call babysitters, um, mm. which I did. I had a bunch of them. And – you know, when things were really bad, Sean's clients often were really flexible. Like Sean would sometimes have to say, well, you know, we don't have anyone to watch our kid or like our kid is sick. We can't get a babysitter in here. So like I have to cancel today and I'll make it up for you and mm -hmm. see you another time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a lot of I have a lot of family locally, which also also helps. Why do you know that? I'm one of four kids and up until recently, two of my brothers lived in Brooklyn. So when my kids were little, for example, one of my brothers and his wife and their kids lived six blocks away from us, and the other lived four blocks away from us. Wow. So, you know, you just definitely. Drop your kids off. Yeah. Like Tia, Anne Marie, Melissa, yeah. Uncle Aaron, Uncle yeah. Jeremy, like they did a lot of, of helping us um, mm -hmm. in those moments. And that's always been really sweet because my kids also grew up super close to all those folks in our family, which is nice. Mm. And then as they got older, right, I didn't have the same sort of childcare needs, right? Like right. they eventually, it could be like you could stay home alone for two hours until dad gets home or whatever. And now my kids are, you know, 15 and 20. So. Oh, my God, he's 20 already. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so they obviously, you know, I don't need yeah. babysitters right. at this point. My son is a babysitter now, so. <laughs> is he really? Yeah, my 15-year-old. Yeah. Wow. What do your... Yes, you've been doing this for as long as your sons have been alive. And yes, they probably know more about pregnancy than most pregnant <laughs> women, um, pregnant people. How did they feel about your profession? Like, how was it that you were able to um, navigate that? Or if you had to navigate that much? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's just always like they've never known anything different. Mm -hmm. And so 
it wasn't like a career change or anything. Like, that's just always been what I did. You know, I think it has required of them a certain level of flexibility, right? That, like, sometimes I'm at a birth on my son's birthday or I, like, miss things or, you know, August won an award and, like, they had a presentation for it, but it was two hours north of the city and I can't go two hours north of the city when I'm on call, you know? Mm -hmm. So my kids have definitely had to make sacrifices along the way. But I also think that they understand the sort of gravity of why we make those sacrifices and that that's important, right? That, like, I don't have a job that feels like I'm prioritizing clients, you know, like, it's not like I'm helping people sue other people to, right. like, get a higher or fraction to, of blah, 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 or whatever. Not to knock hair and makeup people, but it's not like you're just going off because somebody's got an award show that they need yeah, to attend. Yeah, right. I mean, right. I think there's a lot of versions of, like, Jobs where people are asked to prioritize clients in a way that doesn't actually feel as fulfilling, perhaps. doesn't have as much gravity in yeah, their yeah, lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my, you know, my kids have always understood and like honored that, like, you know, I was helping people do something that was big and important and significant mm-hmm. and also really is timely that like I, I can't actually be like, let's do it tomorrow instead, right. you know, that that isn't actually a possibility. Mm hmm. And so I think that's good. I mean, I've always felt good about the idea of my kids growing up in a world like I am the primary Provider. income earner in yeah. our family. And mm-hmm. like that is and Sean was the primary caregiver. And I think that we felt really good about that, about raising sons in a world where like my business was the more important thing and was the like more significant piece and for mm-hmm. them to have that modeled for them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they they have a lot of respect for that. I mean, like, my kids know that, like, I'm paying their tuition, you know, yeah. for example. Right. Like, I, you know, I, I slept on the floor of a hospital and, like, cleaned up somebody's throw up and, like, held space for them for 30 hours to pay your tuition. Yeah. Um, and I think that they, they, you know, they honor that. And yeah. that's, you know, it is really the family business, right? Yeah, right. Sometimes when clients give me, it's obviously never required, but, Sometimes clients will give me presents after they have a baby, like as a thank you. Mm-hmm. And occasionally people have given me things specifically for the kids, which I think is always very insightful, right? Like mm-hmm. I had some clients one year who like gave me gift cards for like an art store or something like that or a toy store. I can't remember if toy store or art store yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And they were like, these are for your kids. And, they, and there was like a card that was That's like, awesome. you know, thanks for like yeah. having your mom leave and like be gone, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. And it's like it is sort of an insightful recognition that like yeah. um, part of doing this work is is leaving the people who, you know, rely on you right. for an unknown amount of time. Wow. <laughs> are you still are you still spending the summers with your boys? Yeah. This okay, was well, the first. To refer, go back yeah. to what we were talking about in terms of like you uh, theoretically take on five clients a month, yeah. nine months out of the year because you take off three months out of the year. Yeah. So the balance of things is that I usually leave the city for 10 weeks mm-hmm. um, every summer, which translates into being usually off for, for close to three months because I need a sort of buffer on either end of that because of how it works to take clients and their due dates, you know? Mm-hmm. So usually I take clients with due dates, you know, through somewhere in the early part of June and then again in September. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing that since forever, since the boys were tiny and mm-hmm. we leave town and go on an adventure somewhere. Yeah. The way you year. described it was like, so the boys know they get you yeah, I mean, it's a nice without being on call for yeah. that 10 weeks. It's a nice balance of like being really accessible and available and like 
keeping my word and like being present with my family. Mm-hmm. And also it's been a nice, like, I think Sean and I 100% could not imagine a better place to be raising our children than Brooklyn. Like we 100% chose Amen. this place and want <laughs> to be here and like love what it looks like to for our children to have community here and the resources here and the people. Like we, yeah. we have no questions about that. Mm-hmm. But I also love to have them experience the contrast of other kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. I do like to, like, take them out into the woods. And I like them to, you know, spend time, you know, in rural areas. And I like them to see what the rest of the world looks like and um, and then to come back here, right? Yeah. And so that's been also a part of that rhythm is that we, we leave every year for two months and we come back. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that means that our kids, you know – learn how to do things that are also not just city skills yeah right that they they have the they have a broader right perspective they know what it's like to be out in the woods they yeah. know what trees look like <laughs> right um, well, we have trees in new york city too yes yes but like <laughs> a lot you know, of them like not just like a tree here and a tree there <laughs> just like a whole bunch of trees together and like how you walk through them and not get lost um i mean you know you could technically do that in the ramble in central park yeah too. technically <laughs> and you know the forest park in queens yeah um so logistics, how do you plan for such a thing? Well, I am—I really like taking vacation, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> and I don't mean just scheduling. I mean, like, for the other business owners that are like, how do you take off? It's like, I've got friends who are like, I can't imagine taking off for a week because of, like, all the work leading up to getting ready to right. taking off for a week and, like, getting slammed with work when they get back. And we're just talking yeah. a week. We're not going to talk about a European vacation. It probably right? depends on what kind of industry you're in. Right. Right? Like, so, so much of my work is – framed around due dates, mm-hmm. right? That like I can just take clients who right. are not in a certain window. Right. And I work some while I'm on vacation. I don't yeah. I you know, oh. I don't take two months off and not work at all. Right. I still You're consulting still. I still yeah. do phone things. I still do video things. I still teach some classes. Like mm-hmm. once a month I teach a few classes mm-hmm. every month. Um so, you know, it's a it's a pairing of those kinds mm-hmm. of things. But I so, like, when we vacation, we we make sure that some of the time we'll be, like, in a house that has internet, for mm-hmm. example, so that I can do that kind of stuff. And I have, you know, Stephanie, my backup mm-hmm. doula. So, like, she and I, we both take vacations in the summer. And we tell our clients, right, like, if you can't reach me, like, this is, this is the person who you reach out to. Like, mm-hmm. she spent, like, four, five days this summer, like, hiking on the California coast. Like, there was no reception. So, like... If her clients needed something in that window, they knew to reach out to me, yeah. right? And I, yeah. like, you know, spent time, like, in, in you know, rural Michigan, like, up in the UP, and I didn't have any reception for the time that we were camping there on the lake. And so, you know, we, we have some sort of back and forth in that kind of way. Yeah. But also, I am able to sort of, like, regulate how the due dates work. And I think that's very different from, like, an ongoing kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have clients who who just have an ongoing always yeah. kind of need, it's right. harder to be like, and then I'm going to take eight weeks off. Right. Right. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do for that eight weeks? Right. And like, I don't actually right. know. Right. Yeah. So this is a different, there's a different rhythm to my yeah. work that's really worked that way. And Sean's a teacher. So we've yeah. always taken the summers off because that makes sense for his schedule. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you have a budget, like, again, logistics, like how much are you setting aside for these vacations? And like, how do you plan? for? You know, we've things? done different amounts all along the time, depending on sort of like what our business is allowed for and stuff too. Oh, right. So okay. like sometimes maybe you're staying in a friend's cabin that they have that's available or you're doing a, you know, a road trip or a lot more camping or, you know, whatever. There's like obviously more and less expensive ways to do this, which Mm -hmm. is like different from like 
you know, lots of plane travel and like, you know, higher end Airbnbs or whatever, mm-hmm. like you're, you know, and, and different places cost different amounts of money. Right. I mean, and so sometimes we've also paired that like one summer we spent eight weeks on four Hawaiian islands, like that was more expensive. Yeah. You know, um, right. <laughs> and so like the next summer we took a less expensive trip to sort of like balance that out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I also think that I think people are very different in how they plan for vacations. And if you read my book, you'll see that I do a little paralleling between planning for birth and planning for vacations. Well, now that Grace um, is three and a half, I think I might actually have time to. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, I like I think for us also so much of the vacation is just like being together somewhere. Yeah. And so. It doesn't matter. We've gone a lot of different places and they're more or less fancy. And, you know, like I'm I'm not necessarily curating like hot air balloon trips through (laughs) Montana's countryside and like champagne caviar picnics or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the back, uh, you know, dash of our car. Nice. um, While we eat them, like, you know, looking at a cool part of the road or whatever. Okay. I don't know how much you can share, but can you give us a couple of really cool stories? Oh, sure. Like what kind of stories? Ones that have one that really surprised you and one that was inc- an incredible learning experience of being a doula. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you've got another one, I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Well, well, just the other day I was telling a client a story. I guess maybe it counts as surprise. I don't know. I was helping somebody and we were traveling the same sort of roads and I was reminded of a client of mine who gave birth several years ago to her second baby. I had been with her for the first, but the second baby, as as they sometimes do, came very fast. And... You know, like at 9 a.m., she was like, I might be having contractions. And at 9.15, and, and then at 9.15, she was like, I'm going to do this work meeting. And then at like 9.25, her husband was like, you should come over right now. And what? I, you know, like like <laughs> yeah. really fast kind of stuff. And then I got there and was like, oh, we have to get you out of this house now if we're yeah. getting into a hospital. And we got in the car and we started driving from Greenpoint to Manhattan, which means you go over the Pulaski Bridge. Mm-hmm. Which if you have ever been over the Pulaski Bridge, you know it's a drawbridge. And so if there's a big boat coming through, they stop traffic on the bridge and pull the bridge up and let the boat go through and put the bridge back down. And that takes a really long time. And so we're in this cab. And, oh, God, you're in a cab. Okay. And, yeah, we're in a minivan. And the cab driver, like, you know, maybe doesn't totally understand the gravity of the situation, which is like, okay, because I actually don't really need the cab driver to be panicked. But the drawbridge starts to go up and we are the first person stopped. Like maybe if he'd gone a little faster, we would have just made it over. But we are the first person stopped, which means that there are going to be, you know, 10,000 cars piled up behind us. So nobody's going to be able to access us from behind. And there's a open drawbridge in front of us. And she's she's going to have a baby. If we, I mean, like I'm immediately like she's going to have a baby on this bridge and we can't even get an ambulance here. It's definitely not going to happen. And her husband, who, like, did, like, two tours in Afghanistan, like, he's, like, you know, very capable man. I was, like, you need to go find – there's a bridge master, which I know because I've ridden my bike over this bridge a lot of times seeing clients. And I know there's, like, a person who's watching this scene. You need to go find him. Like, he's halfway up this bridge somewhere. And you need to tell him that he needs to stop that boat and open this bridge and let us through. And I'm going to call an ambulance to meet us on the other side. And he does. And he, like, runs down the road and he – if you've ever been on the bridge, there's these like huge cement bollards in the middle. Like they're big. 
Whenever I look at them now and I remember him jumping over it, like, like just like it was nothing. I just, rem- I'm just like, he must have been, had, he must have had <laughs> a kind of like hormone experience yeah. in his body that supercharges you. Because my baby it's literally is on Im- its way. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's literally impossible to jump over these bollards. But he did it like, boop, you know, no problem. Found the guy. Closed, they stopped the ship. They set the bridge back down. We drove over and then. And she's like, you know, about to have a baby, which if you recall, being about to have a baby is a very embodied experience, right? There's like a lot of stuff coming out of I your body. I hit you in the face. <laughs> accidentally. I don't even remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like, and it's only because I'm kinesically aware enough that I was like, when I whipped around, when I whipped my body around, my hand made contact and you were the only person on the other side. <laughs> so I must have hit you in the face. Mm, I don't remember. Right. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate um, you. <laughs> So, you know, we had called an ambulance and I had explained to them, like, we need an ambulance waiting like at the other side of the Pulaski Bridge. Like, when the drawbridge opens, we're going to come through and, like, we need you to be there waiting. And they were. We could, like, hear them, which was great, like, as they were opening the bridge and stuff. Wait, were you calling them while, yeah, while like, the husband I'm in a cab. Saying, okay. I'm in a cab with her, like, yeah. taking her pants down, like, gloves on, like, if yeah. we have to deliver this baby. Yeah. And we, you know, calling 911. They had an ambulance there. And then um, – and then, you know, we just got her out of the car. But, I mean, she was, like, not, was it crowning? not very well clothed. <laughs> and just, like, you know, on, like, whatever it is. They're, like, Jackson Avenue yeah. in Long Island City. And I was joking with my client because she was, you know, I was joking with this other client recently because she was, like, it's so amazing. Like, you know, we're trying to wait for a cab to get her from Long Island City to the city. And there's all these people around. And she was, like, I'm having a real moment where I'm looking at all these people and I'm, like, Fuck all of you. Like, none of you are in labor. Fuck you. And and I was like, yeah, you know, I hear that. Like, fuck, fuck all these people, you know. And she was like, and every person who, like, everybody else is just going up with their lives. And her right. husband was like, I just makes me think, like, how many cars have I driven by, like, casually mm-hmm. or, like, cut off or whatever. And mm-hmm. I, that there was, like, a person in labor in that right. car, though, you know. Right. And um, so we were having this conversation. And I was saying, but New Yorkers, you know, are just great, right? Like, so I'm taking this woman, like, out of an ambulance, like, pantsless. Or to taking get, her out of a cab. Taking her out of a cab. Yeah. Pantsless on the street to get into a stretcher, to get onto a stretcher to get into this ambulance. And people are just like, this guy blocking the sidewalk. You know, whatever. Like, nobody, I mean, like, pe- New Yorkers just, like, oh. don't care. They're just so <laughs> casual about it. They're right. just like. Ah, now I got to go around you, okay? You know, whatever. (laughs) Like, like, people weren't like, oh, my God, this, like, you're about to have a baby. No, No. people are like, well, like, are you going to leave this spot? Because I, (laughs) you know, whatever. I'm trying to get through, and you're kind of blocking the way. (laughs) And so, yeah, so that was maybe, like, a surprising one. We made it to the hospital minutes before that baby arrived into the world. Yes, which was Did the doctor even have time to wash up? Oh, my God. It it was not a doctor from her practice, but it was a doctor I knew came down. She gave birth in in an ER instead of on labor and delivery because they were like, we don't have time to get you up seven floors. (laughs) Um, So that was a surprising one. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Wow, and that was baby number two. Yeah. And they thought they were going to a work meeting at 9.15. Yeah, or some. I mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> have the exact time down, but yes, it but was yeah. like, I'm going to do this work call and then let you know, and then that that did Didn't not happen. happen. <sighs> okay, that was great. Um, <laughs> do you got another one? Because that was really great. <laughs> um, it was, yeah. It feels so like um, uh, the stuff that TV would love, but never quite get right. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, and there's a ton of that in doula work, right? Like, I helped somebody have a baby once who, like, we had stayed home and labored at home for a long time. But we had plenty of time to get to the hospital, except that, like, right before we were leaving, 
<clears throat> Fort Greene, a, a boat like tapped the Brooklyn Bridge, which meant they had to close the Brooklyn Bridge to make sure structural engineers could yeah. come in and make sure the bridge wasn't in trouble. Yeah. And, and you were in Fort Greene. It was like Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And so, you know, getting across the Manhattan Bridge should not have been a huge deal, except that all of the Brooklyn Bridge in both directions was now closed. And so it took us an hour to get across the Manhattan Bridge, which is, you, you know, might as well have taken the subway. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at this point, I would have taken the ferry if it had existed back then. It right. would have been way faster. But, you know, and so like when we got to the other side, um, it was just dense, dense, dense traffic in Chinatown. And, you know, this woman was like nine centimeters when we got to labor. So she she was in really active labor. For people who don't know, 10 centimeters is like, okay, it's go time. Right, exactly. Baby so is very, on its way. Very close to having a baby. And At 10 so centimeters is about the size of a New York City bagel. <laughs> <laughs> or a newborn's head. <laughs> or, <laughs> or a newborn's head. Um, so... We flagged down some cops and I was like, you know, we're going to have to like impress upon them how important this is to try and get them to like lights and sirens us. Yeah. And um, often they won't just FYI. Mm. Often they'll just call an ambulance and make you stay there and then bring an ambulance to you, which is actually not as convenient often as lights and sirens if you really don't need an ambulance in that moment. But these guys were apparently MTA cops who had been sort of weirdly stationed in this space because there was some sort of concern about something. They were like doing a counterterrorism training or something. I don't know what it was. But they were MTA cops, not normal city like street cops. And I think they loved the idea of lights and sirensing us because then they were like, yeah, we'll do it for sure. And they went, they cleared First Avenue in a way that I've never seen. Oh, like, my God. And the woman on the, there, like the, there was a male police officer driving. There was a woman who was like on the PA system, yeah. right? And she was like, get out of the way, like move out of the way, clear the road. Like, I mean you. Like she was like, she was like broadcasting like a pretty intense narrative all the way up First <laughs> Avenue of like get out of the way of this wow. vehicle. Wow. And like we trailed them to the hospital. And then it was very sweet because after my client had the baby, she was like, I need to find these people. But we hardly had any information about who they were because mm. of course we showed up at the hospital and we we're like, thank you. And like ran inside. You right. Know? And um but through like a lot of – and they, they were not easy to find because they weren't like local precinct cops, right? right? They were like randomly right. Brooklyn MTA cops who happened to have been in Chinatown. So yeah. anyway, she went through a lot of iterations. She eventually like tracked them down. Wow. And they had like a ceremony at like the MTA police headquarters for this baby where they gave the baby like a oh little medal and like a little like subway book and stuff. <laughs> and it was like – this is all pretty fucking cute and very New Yorky. <laughs> You know. So New Yorky. Yeah. Oh man. Wow. Two incredibly different experiences. Well, I mean, both of those did involve like really trying to get to the hospital very quickly over right. bridges. Right. So I guess maybe I stuck with like one theme there. But is that gonna be the second book? Just leave <laughs> how to get over a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, how to get over a bridge. New York City style. Um, oh my god. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Oh, my God, I've been talking to you forever. I don't feel Not like you need long, any. Never long enough, Megan. <laughs> never long anything enough. more. Anyway, so how can people find you should they need your services? I have a website, um, brooklyndoula.com. And, yeah. You're available, what was it, uh, September to beginning of June? Yeah, yeah. Typically, in July and August, I um, can't help people with in-person support. Um, yeah. But, yeah, people reach out to me for other kinds of things sometimes um, yeah. in that window and that that's okay. And then I can also help people 
find other people, right? When I'm not the mm, when I'm not the right one, maybe I can help you. Yeah, find one of my trusted colleagues who. And your book, your birth plan, your birth plan. Yes, for anyone who would like a great resource in how to give birth. Yeah, <laughs> or what yeah. to do. You can find process. it wherever books are sold. And I, I yes, I say like let's never stop recording. Um, but it's also like oh man. Like, I almost cried, like, three times. I cried once, and I, know, I almost cried, like, two more times. <laughs> like, and it was just like, what? Um, I, a part of me is like, am I pregnant right now? <laughs> is it just the effect of being around me? Possibly, because <laughs> it's so exciting to be around you. And it's like the work that you do is so profound. My friend Amy, I call her my friend Amy. She's my former client, Amy. Now she's my friend Amy. Mm -hmm. But Amy mm -hmm. cries every single time she sees me. And I keep joking with her that we have to get over this. We have to get to a place where she doesn't cry the moment she sees me. And Why? she's like, I can't. I can't get I can't get past the spot. Like, we'll have a moment. We'll we'll see each other. And I'll be like, it's going good. You know, we're both smiling. And, and then, then she'll start crying. She's just like, I can't. I can't see you and not cry. Yeah. And I think I, I, think I get it. <laughs> I think I totally get it. Like, here I am. I'm so again. You just talked about it. And, like, I don't even, I can't even tell you why I'm crying. Um, except for the fact that you're so present. And I don't know if I may be so bold. It's it's not always um, the thing to be around people who are present because it's just hard enough to be. And so and then to ask them to be present. I mean, I think it's a it's a practice in many ways, right? And that I get a lot of chance to practice it because I get a lot of chance to be really present with people. But the fact that you know to be. Yeah, I mean, I think this work is a combination of what we learn in training or in doing the work and also who we are, right? That like, like, like anything, some of us have more aptitude for things, right? That like... Mm. For certain things, like, yeah, you know, it's not, it's a... Yeah, we all have an aptitude for things, and some of us are just better at yeah. some things. Some of us are going to gravitate right. more. Some of us are going to have the skills or the kinds of brains or the kinds of bodies or whatever to right. do certain kinds of work. You know, right. like when I was a kid and I would argue, my parents would always be like, you're going to make a great lawyer someday. But, like, <laughs> not really. And the fact that you were drawn to anthropology, I mean, anthropology unto itself is all about, like, just being present and observing and um, albeit things change once you observe it, but still like trying to um, not be uh, invasive. Yeah. My work in anthropology was all in social movements. In social movements. Yeah. My work is all in social movements, social change. My dissertation work was on transgender activism in the U.S. and like trans movements and social change. I'm sorry. What was it on? Transgender activism in the U.S. And you're not involved in that how is it that you're not involved in that work now? <laughs> I'm involved in it in like that it's something I feel, you know, very strongly about and that I, you know, like I was talking to a client the other day and she was like, oh, my friend's five-year-old has been saying since they were three, you know, how, that they identified differently than how the parents have identified them and whatever. And she's really going through like a major thing. And I was like, you should tell her to talk to me. Like I will happily Amazing. for free, like Amazing. You know, chat her up and like help her figure out what she's doing, you know. Um, let's, uh, we need to include that in the recording. Everyone needs to know, <laughs> consult, consult Megan. <laughs> but, you know, but also like helping people just access resources because there's a lot of other amazing folks who are doing that work too, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot mm -hmm. of amazing folks who, I mean, part of doing the dissertation work was, you know, I got to interview over a hundred activists in the U.S. And so, oh you know, those are the folks who are really making the change and doing the work. <sighs> okay. I'm going to tap you for people I can interview. Um, <laughs> 
Oh, wow. Okay. I had no idea, like, because we never talked about this stuff. So, yes. Um, <laughs> let's end the interview again. Like, oh, my God. So great to see you. So, long pause. Megan and I just kept talking. So, Desi just had to cut, cut it someplace. <laughs> yeah, that was a glimpse into my relationship with Megan. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and all the nitty-gritty details of what it's like to be a labor doula. Next week, I sit down with Noah Wunsch, burgeoning beverage king, with his entree into hibiscus water and the creation of the Rubyverse. I'd like to thank my producer, Desi, for helping me make Bank the Fire possible, and all of you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast, please go to Patreon to make a contribution or become a patron. Please follow us on social media and share our podcast. Thank you and tune in next week.